Over the next few years, bots will pervade our lives more and more. These smart conversational text interfaces provide a new way of engaging with the computer systems that we've been mostly interacting with through web and mobile app interfaces for the last decade. Bots are a necessary complement to the voice interfaces of the future because we don't always want to talk to the computer, and natural language processing is not yet good enough to always translate our vocal requests accurately. Bots are not toys, they aren't trivial, and they aren't going away anytime soon. John Bruner is the host of the O'Reilly Bots podcast, a show that has quickly become one of my favorites because it covers both theoretical and applied artificial intelligence while remaining approachable to listen to. John hosts it with Pete Skomaroke, who works on a bot startup full-time, and John and Pete were also the organizers of O'Reilly Bot Day, which I enjoyed tremendously. I got a lot of knowledge from, so thank you to O'Reilly. And thanks to John for being a guest on this show. I hope you enjoy this episode. John Bruner is a host of the O'Reilly Bots podcast. John, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. Good to be here. Bots are important, and over the next few years, we're going to see them pervade our lives more and more. And this was something that I didn't really understand before I started to listen to the Bots podcast, which you host with Pete Skomarok. Why are bots becoming more prominent? Well, uh, Jeff, there are a couple of things going on here. Uh, One is that the way that people use their mobile phones is changing. Uh, You might think that almost 10 years now after the uh, release of the iPhone and and eight or so years after the release of the uh, App Store, people would be downloading apps all the time and, uh, you know, using their phones to their fullest extents. But it turns out that the app economy is really stagnating, that it's become very difficult to get people to download new mobile apps and get involved in sort of new mobile practices. And it turns out that most users of iPhones and Android smartphones, um, especially younger people, are really just using them for messaging, for uh, for IM and for texting uh, through platforms like uh, SMS and uh, WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger and Snapchat. So um, that's that's one thing that makes bots appealing, that you could have these little, you know, fragments of software living in a chat application that a few years ago you might have put into a standalone app. But now no one's downloading standalone apps anymore. Everyone just wants to use uh, messaging on their phones. It is similar to the idea of everything being moved into the web browser and you don't have to download any software. You just access everything through a web app. Yeah, that's right. I mean, when's the last time you uh, you know downloaded and installed a, a desktop application for your personal computer? It sounds so old, right? Well, okay, so so there's certainly these existential changes that are going on. Is that the only thing that's going on here? Or are, like, Because the idea of bots have been around for a long time. I mean, are there, other, are there other things in the water right now that are causing bots to become more prominent? Yeah, you're, you're totally right. Uh, the idea has been around for a while. Uh, the other thing is the emergence of practical artificial intelligence. So the, the AI landscape has changed really dramatically in the last few years uh, between much cheaper computing in the cloud and ubiquitous connectivity that make it possible to connect to that really cheap computing. Plus, there have been a lot of advancements in the software techniques for artificial intelligence. 
So it's getting a lot easier to write software that can interpret human language and uh, make sense of it and then come back with a response that makes sense. Are the bots a new interface for old applications that have been around for a while, or is it a platform that unlocks completely new functionality? Uh, There are a lot of people developing bots that basically reproduce uh, existing app functionality, things like, uh, you know, bots that'll book you travel reservations uh, or bots that'll check the weather for you and tell you what's going on. But uh, there are also some new applications, things that haven't been handled well by software so far that look like they'll be compelling uh, use cases for bots, things like scheduling meetings. You know, for the last few years, a lot of people have developed uh, things that, you know, websites where you can go and you can send someone a link and say, hey, let's meet up, choose a time from my calendar here, and this web page will kind of mediate our schedules. Things like that have never caught on, but now we have stuff like Clara and X.AI, which are bot assistants that you CC on your email, and then they jump in the way that a personal assistant would and kind of facilitate um, a meeting. So that's arguably a new application for software that might really catch on. What's the general case that we can extrapolate there? So like you point out X.AI and Clara as these good scheduling uh, interfaces. You know, you schedule a calendar event with somebody. Instead of having to go back and forth, you use the bot, which intermediates some of that. But what What is the generalizable characteristic there that we can observe about these scheduling bots that makes it more effective than the web interface that we might be able to extrapolate to other applications? Oh, that's a really good uh, way of putting the question. It's... Uh uh, you know, these are these are bits of software that communicate with users in human terms. So you're not asking users to use a computer interface. You're you're asking them to interact with the software the way that they're used to interacting with humans. You launched the Bots podcast about three months ago, I think, three or four months ago. Yeah, I think it was uh, back in August 2016. How has your opinion of bots changed over that period of time? Uh, I've I've actually become a lot more positive about bots uh, since then in talking to people who are creating bots and, and creating the underlying technologies and platforms. You were a skeptic. I was a bit of a skeptic, yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it felt like something that, uh, that was beginning to arrive in terms of the underlying technology, but in talking to the creators of this stuff and talking to people who are using bots, um, I've become more convinced about their commercial prospects and, and sort of social prospects. Yeah, so I remember, I think it was like three or four months ago, I was sitting at a table uh, at a restaurant in San Francisco with some of my friends who are all in tech, and I was the only person at the table who was saying, like, no, I think the bots, these bots are actually useful. Everybody else at the table was saying, oh, there's all this venture capital money going into bots. It's all just <laughs> wasted money. Um, I mean, look, in in all fairness, it hasn't really borne out in any direction yet. There's been a lot of investment. There's, you know, as you and I have seen in doing interviews with people and seeing those cool presentations at bot day, there is something here. There's, it's not absolutely nothing, uh, but it is unclear as of yet if the investment has, is overheated right now. That's right. Yeah. And, and it certainly looks like a, uh, a trend that popped up out of nowhere. You know, it, it, it was under a year ago, maybe roughly a year ago, that you started to see sort of the classic beginning of it, which is uh, a handful of, of well-distributed venture capital essayists, you know, beginning to talk about the possibility of 
of bots and this kind of software interface. And then there, there followed a lot of medium posts. Um, and, uh, back in June, I went to a, a great small, uh, bot conference called botanist that, uh, it's really, it's a community event that, uh, uh, folks from the big platforms and, and some of the startups, uh, all work together on. And, um, even back in June, people were sitting at this, uh, gathering in San Francisco and going like, uh, bots are over, man. And it was ridiculous. You know, it, uh, there's, there's a way that, uh, I think the community gets skeptical of things that arise very quickly. And then you're right that there haven't been any runaway successes. There haven't been any exits. Certainly there haven't been any, uh, you know, well, actually there have been a couple of big acquisitions. Viv was, was, uh, acquired by Samsung a couple of months ago. Um, and, uh, API.ai was acquired by Google but for the most part, you haven't seen this really, you know, bear fruit in a dramatic way. So, so people are naturally a little skeptical because it came up quickly and uh, and seemed to to go everywhere. This is, of course, the problem of following efficient market uh, hypothesis and tracking investments, like they are a direct reflection of reality rather than a distorted reflection of reality. And I think another <laughs> example of this is Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. You talk to even people who invest in Bitcoin, and they'll say something like, uh, you know, Bitcoin, there's no killer app. And the reality is that the infrastructure is not there. The mm-hmm. theoretical underpinnings of Bitcoin are very powerful, and that's not going to change. There is something there. It's the same thing with these chat interfaces whether the the ecosystem underpinnings uh, <clears throat> are going to develop anytime soon or not is up for debate. But you know, it's just a nascent field, and <clears throat> a lot has to go right for for the stars to align for it to get mass adoption. Um, you know, for something, you, you know, well, and then you have all these other things that could potentially intermediate it. Augmented mm-hmm. reality comes to mind. You know, if augmented reality becomes big, maybe that. Uh, totally changes our perspective for the interfaces that we want to be uh, engaging with. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, so we, we, thinking about the Bitcoin thing, like I think about I think about the relationship, or the the um, the comparison between Bitcoin and the bots podcast. I think like starting the bots podcast three months ago is kind of like starting a Bitcoin podcast five or six years ago, where <laughs> people, you know. There's like a few people who are involved in bots, and you know, if you spend a lot of time in that community, it might seem like everybody's talking about bots, but in reality, there's just like a few people who are authorities, a few people who are tinkering with it. For the most part, engineers are not thinking much about bots. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I think that's accurate. It's it's really right now in the stage of, uh, you know, a lot of, there, there are a handful of startups in this area. Um, a lot of investors are interested in investing in companies in this area, but haven't yet uh, done so. And then among the bigger companies, it's something that's kind of on the on the um, horizon for like R and D groups that are charged with you know familiarizing themselves with with kind of the next thing. And they're they're commissioning some uh, you know trials, especially companies that deal a lot with customer service, like airlines, are, are really interested in this. Um, but but it's not something where you see developers racing to add bot development to their stack. You know, um, and and there are a few reasons for that. I mean, it's you know, it, it it's not a hugely widespread phenomenon yet, and also it requires a, a skill set that's slightly different from, actually considerably different from web development. 
you need to know something about AI, something about uh, uh, sort of linear user interfaces that are a bit different from the, the UIs on the web. So with that in mind, <clears throat> what's the state of the tooling? Because the comparison to web apps is interesting. Building a chatbot versus building a web app. If you want to build a web app today, whether or not you have much experience in it, you can spend a weekend with Ruby on Rails following a Rails tutorial, and you can learn how to build a simple web app. But my sense is that with the bot ecosystem, despite the fact that, you know, ostensibly, well, in some light, building a bot is more straightforward, it's just this text interface Despite that, it seems like you still kind of need to piece together all of these different tools today. There's not really like a Ruby on Rails for building a bot. Right. Uh, there there are a few uh, frameworks that make it a little bit easier. Uh, Howdy is one of the really popular ones. There's also the Microsoft Bot Framework that do some of the work of, you know, abstracting the uh, the interaction with the platform. So that you basically just say, like, send message here's the message, and then it you know, takes care of it. Uh, that's especially true of the bot platform uh, from Microsoft, which, which works across a lot of different messaging platforms. And the messaging platforms themselves are evolving really quickly to become easier for developers to use. That wasn't necessarily uh, one of the concerns that they had when they launched these things a few years ago, uh, but they've, they've all really aggressively added functionality that can appeal to developers. The, the tricky gap right now is really in the AI and the natural language understanding, the NLU. Um, that's an area that requires some skills that are a bit different from uh, straightforward web development. And there are some services, sort of AI as a service uh, platforms, that'll help you with that. But after you get past the the very early kind of wireframe stage, most bot creators find that they have to build their own AI in some respect, at least to work with any kind of specialized application. What does that term AI mean in this context? Uh, so so the artificial intelligence that's able to understand free text input and um, and generate responses. So so it usually usually these platforms offer some sort of you know um, entity extraction in particular. So they'll have tools where it'll take free text and it'll look for you know a date and time that's being mentioned and return a a well-defined date-time object from it, or or look for, um, you know, is this answer essentially yes or essentially no? If someone writes nah, does that mean, you know, then it'll return like a false object. And if they say yup, it'll return a, you know, a true object. You, you know, you talk about this NLP, NLU stuff, you, know, you may have to build a proficiency in it if you want to get your bot really good. Is is the technology there? I mean, even if you have a great proficiency in it, even if you're at the cutting edge, is the the NLU at the you know at the in the, in the best applications? Is it good enough to provide a good enough user experience? This is something that a lot of people in the bot world talk about. You know, why Siri is so frustrating and not used very much versus uh, why the Amazon Echo has been such a huge success. And the thinking often goes along the lines that Siri kind of overpromises and underdelivers, uh, and the Echo does the opposite. So Siri gives you the sense um, somehow through a series of little cues, through its advertising, uh, that you can throw anything at it and it'll come back with a brilliant answer. And it often sort of teases you with like a, a snarky answer. The Echo, on the other hand, um, basically goes in with the promise that it'll 
tell you what time it is and handle timers in your kitchen and convert between units. And then you discover gradually that it has all of these other capabilities that are uh, really incredible. So, so it's not just the quality of the AI. It's also the, the quality of the design that guides the user in how to use the AI. Okay, so we're getting into the speech interface uh, competition discussion, and this is not a consumer electronics podcast, but I actually I just want to ask, and I just want to go there for a bit, even though there are so many other podcasts that have this conversation, and I'm sure people can go listen to many, many other shows that will go into this discussion, but from a technological standpoint, like, and from a business standpoint, we're both um, armchair critics of what goes on in business and technology. Um, I find so I've heard that narrative, the idea that like, oh, Siri under Siri overpromises, underdelivers. I, I think there are other explanations. Like, even if you had not seen any marketing for Siri and you used it, and then you used Alexa or even Google Home, you'd just be like. This is so much worse. It's just astoundingly worse. I think it's a, a lot of it is there's something like the speaker is not good enough, or the there's some like latency weird latency issues that are non intuitive compared to like the the latency of of Alexa versus um, versus versus Siri is so much better. And I remember I don't know if you read this article. There was some article that came out about like how Bezos was involved in the development of Lex, and he was basically like, look, latency is going to be really, really, really important here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's that's that was like a killer, um, that was a killer insight, um, that how, how important, like, the quickness of the response was and how hard they worked to get that latency down. And I think it's evident that the Siri, Siri development has struggled there because, I mean, I'm sure... I, you know, I don't think, you know, when everybody is criticizing Siri, I don't think we're telling Apple anything that they don't know. It just must be really, really hard to iron out that kind of, like, to, you know, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. You can't, like, just, re- it's probably really hard to refactor it to get the latency down significantly. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're comparing uh, Siri to both the Echo and to Google Now, the um, the advantage that the Echo has is that it's plugged in, so its its initial latency is always going to be outstanding because it can draw just a little bit more power uh, in order to always be sort of on standby. And um, in the case of Google, uh, the, Google's advantage is that it has the entire web to learn from. And I think one of the successful things about Google Now that always disappoints me when I use Siri is like Google Now is sort of natively um, oriented toward performing a web search. So it, you have, it, it, it falls back onto just showing you a page of Google results, which is often actually what you want. Siri kind of has this approach where it's like, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer this question from my own internal context. And if I can't, then I will grudgingly show you a list of, of search engine results uh, for your query. So just to touch on the consumer gadgets a little more, um, I mean, I so I ordered. I, I had I had an Amazon uh, Amazon Alexa, and then I returned it because I saw the announcement for the Google Home, and I just assumed that the Google Home would be better. And then I got it, and I've kind of been underwhelmed by it compared to the Alexa. Like I had a much better experience with the Alexa. And I thought it was interesting because I used Google Now, the the phone version, uh, back when I had an Android device, and it was awesome. But there was there's some gap in the usability 
um, for the Google Home. I don't know. Have you had the same experience? That's interesting. I, I've only ever used uh, a Google Home in a store setting, uh, so I haven't played with one at, at home. But I was reasonably impressed by it uh, in the store. There was someone sort of guiding me in, in uh, suggesting queries to give it, so that, that might have had something to do with it. But do, do you find it's less uh, less flexible or, or seems to learn less? Or I think it's like... Uh... Okay, this is this is actually a very specific critique of it, but the main thing is that for some reason it doesn't integrate with a with Google Apps for Work account. So like I can't integrate my Gmail uh, from a work account. Uh, like you know most most of my emails go through software at software Jeff at softwareengineeringdaily dot com, and for some reason it doesn't integrate with a work account, and that has been that has prevented me from personalizing it. So this is a totally biased deviation. Um, okay, anyway. We should talk more about bots. How, sorry, but um, uh, one other question about the assistant. Oh, sure. uh, so, uh, how are the plugins? Do you see a good, you know, uh, universe of, of skills, so to speak, available yeah. for it? Yeah, plugins have actually been awesome. Um, and the in you know the experience where you like search Google for like recipe for braised short ribs or something, and it gives you like the card, so you don't have to go to to recipes.com or whatever you know, bloated adware site you're going to go to, you know, you don't have to experience that. You just get a card. That experience has been awesome. Um, and you're really seeing like the advantages of Google doing this thing where they just extract information from a site and give no ad revenue to that site. Um, so that's been awesome. There's also like integration with Quora and I love Quora. And so there's been a couple of times where like I ask it a question. It's like, according to Quora, something, or according to product hunt, according to, according to Wikipedia, and this, the integrations there have been really smooth. But what I will say is there's just been a lot of times where where Google simply says, I don't know how to help you with that. And I remember the graceful degradation of Alexa being a little smoother. Huh. So Yeah, yeah. Alexa also has um, a few different uh, failure modes that are really interesting. And, and we discussed this once on the Bots podcast with Kathy Pearl, who's a voice user interface designer. Um, uh, the, the Amazon Echo has kind of these these three different responses if it doesn't understand what you said. There, there's um, the voice that says, I'm sorry, I didn't understand that command or something, I, or I didn't understand your question. And then there's another one where it kind of goes like, boodoop. It makes a little right. a little sound, and it's like, <laughs> oh, yeah. I think you said something, but I'm I'm not sure. I'm just going to turn off. And then there's a third one where, <laughs> where it's it's listening, and then it just the light just goes off, and it doesn't do anything. Right. So yeah, it has it has this very graceful, well thought out uh, series of of failures. And I realize now I miss that. Mm. Yeah, Google Google has has a simplified um, degradation thing. So okay, um, getting back to the bot podcast, what are the themes that you're seeing emerge as you host more episodes? I'd say the the core themes. Um, these are really meta themes. Uh, are how early this whole uh, environment is, how and 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 sort of sub theme is uh, the degree to which everyone is just experimenting with this stuff right now, uh, just sort of throwing ideas out, seeing if they get some users, seeing what the reaction is, inventing new products, uh, sort of to test. They some of them seem a little trivial, but they are. You know, you have to have some trivial use cases so that you can understand uh the environment uh and then you know sub theme two is, is how quickly all of this is developing 
And and especially if you talk with the people who work for the big platforms, um, Microsoft and, and Google and Slack and Amazon, uh, they, they've really been putting a lot of resources into supporting bot developers over the last six months to a year. Uh, really, the developer tools have been available to the public since kind of last spring in most of these cases, like March, April, May. So um, they're developing incredibly fast. Uh, every every week brings some significant new revision uh, to one of the platforms or toolkits. So that, that's something we, we talk about a lot. Um, we also talk about the user interface aspects and, um, and what sorts of uh, provisions people make to, uh, to help the users figure out how to use the bots. This is, this is a, a huge headache <laughs> for a lot of people who have backgrounds in, in web development or, or other forms of more traditional software development where you can, you can create a drop-down menu or a list of buttons that show the user the affordances of the software. You know, you can click here to search by time. You can click here to search by city. Uh, you can click here to open up additional options. But when you have a bot, you it, it becomes really tiresome to say, um, how would you like to search? You can say, search by city. You can say, search by time, right? So so there's this real art to uh, to communicating to the user how they should go about using a bot. Are there any particular episodes that come to mind that really changed how you thought about this space? Well, actually, the very first episode that uh, Pete and I recorded, which was kind of just a, a download with the two of us where we talked about uh, what we had been thinking about with respect to bots and uh, and how we saw the area developing and why we were launching the podcast, that was uh, one of the most informative conversations that I've had because I got to... Um, basically sort of push Pete into explaining himself and his interest in, in, uh, in bots. And, uh, he's, he's a really sharp analyst of this, uh, area. So it was, and, and of course I learn a lot by trying to explain things to other people. So, uh, that was a, a really clarifying experience and we were trying to give the listeners some sense of why we were interested in bots and why we thought they were exciting. So it was great to be able to sort of compile that and, and talk through it. Um, there were a couple others as well. The one that we recorded with Kathy Pearl that I've mentioned before about voice user interface and the challenges there. Um, and even the idea that there is this new user experience that we have to design for. And we think of design often as a visual thing. This is more about text and experience. That's right. Yeah. Super lightweight uh, visual experience, really. Um, and, and highly constrained, too. Because the the messaging platforms don't give you a lot of leeway to uh, to develop your own user interface. It's it's much more limited uh, than what you would be able to do in any kind of web development. You had Joshua Browder on, and I actually had him on my show recently as well. Terrific. Be- yeah, because I saw him at Bot Day, and I heard his show with you, and he is a fascinating character. And his, I find his startup, Do Not Pay, or I don't even know if you want to call it a startup, his product, Do Not Pay, it helps you pay for parking tickets or contest parking tickets, I'm sorry. And it, it's interesting, not necessarily to me because of its impact, although it is impactful. It's like he's helping people contest parking tickets in a really easy way. But what I found so interesting about talking to him is he had a really good explanation for one thing that is different about the interface of a bot 
and just this idea that it's this you know his model for his early model for the bot at least and how it exists mostly now is basically it's just this huge static decision tree and it's hidden behind a simple text interface but that's what it is like you're basically navigating a decision tree with a text interface and that was his presentation of what like why a bot like here is one way a bot can be useful like why would you want to navigate this huge static decision tree using a website that's not a that's not a good experience but the idea that you're just doing it through this this text interface is really sim- simplifying like I, I th- and i think it maybe gets at the idea of you know these interfaces that we've had in the past where you like call into a call center it's like dial one for x <laughs> and like that's just going down decision tree and it's like okay and you're now you're faced with another question dial three for y right right um, yeah the the old ivr systems uh on the phone it's an analogy that comes up a lot with people who build bots joshua is incredibly bright and and he really did hit on something that could be simplified very effectively into just a text-based back and forth you think about you know you don't need any uh, images for that sort of thing. You just need someone to sort of ask you these decision tree questions. And it makes a lot of sense to go through linearly rather than having some website that's, you know, um, type in the name of your city, then hit next. Type in the, you know, where you were parked, then hit next. Um, also, you know, he, he makes a good point or, or his product makes a good point, which is that uh, there's probably plenty of other low-hanging fruit that bot builders could create that essentially doesn't have AI in it. Um, you know, the, the do not pay bot doesn't use uh, deep learning or anything like that, uh, as far as I know. Um, it, it It's able to do this really important work just with, with decision trees. And, and there are probably plenty of other applications uh, that don't involve AI. Speaking of Joshua, he was one of the speakers at Bot Day, which I attended. What were your takeaways from Bot Day? So at Bot Day, I was really interested in um, talking to the people who came and asking them about, uh, you know, the work that they're doing and the impression that they have of the bots field and how that changed over the course of the day. So um, because I was a little bit of a skeptic going in and I've been gradually uh, getting more positive about bots uh, and, and now feel quite positive about them, I expected that everyone who came to Bot Day would be sort of um, a borderline skeptic. And I also thought that over the course of a whole day of talks about the challenges and tools for building bots, that people might be more skeptical at the end of the day than they were at the beginning of the day. But um, we did kind of a show of hands at the beginning of the day and asked people if they really believe in bots. And most hands went up. And then at the end of the day, we asked people if they believe in bots more or less now than they did when they came in. And just about everyone in the room said they believe in bots more. So having been presented with this like rundown of the technical challenges and uh, and 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 overviews of the infrastructure that you have to build and so on, uh, people were actually uh, more positive about bots. And that that's been my feeling as I've looked at this stuff. Uh, it it makes bots kind of concrete. You can begin to see uh, the path that you would take to building bots and implementing them, and you can think about applications. Whereas maybe six months ago. When uh, people like Mark Zuckerberg and Satya Nadella were saying, uh, hey, you can build a bot and it can take care of your stuff. Maybe you can order a pizza with a bot. Um, it, it was hard then to, to believe in it because it was like, yeah, sure, whatever. You know, we'll have AI that'll like order us pizza, I guess. But that doesn't sound very interesting. Once you can start to grasp it, 
in a really tangible way. I think you can start to imagine how you would apply it and you can start to see the roadmap to building it out. Were there any other interesting anecdotes that you saw or heard at Bot Day when you because you know, there's all these people from around the industry probably engaging with each other for the first time. Did you see any interesting cross pollinations? Well, I, I think one of the things that stood out to me is the uh, sort of the breadth of of applications that people were talking about. So we had some people there from uh, you know consumer facing roles at uh, at financial services companies. Um, and, uh, and, and similar organizations who were, uh, interested in building bots that could like handle customer questions. And then at the other end, we also had a lot of people who were building, um, you know, completely internal bots to just, to sort of aid, uh, employees. And, and the range of those was huge too. You could have a bot that, uh, that helps out, you know, someone who's doing telephone customer service inside a call center or a bot that sits in the IT department's uh, Slack installation and uh, you know sends alerts to people and sort of dispatches requests and stuff like that. So um, the the breadth of uh, applications that attendees were interested in was uh, was really interesting, and and I saw that when when I watched some of the interactions. Uh, you know, people, uh, someone who's building a customer service bot talking with someone who's building. Uh, you know, an IT uh, ticket dispatching bot for for internal use. Uh, these are very different cases, and they they have very different requirements. So, the bot world is going to be uh, very broad. I had a conversation with somebody who was sitting next to me at Bot Day about NLP, and we were talking about his startup. Basically, was a I think it was NLP. Uh, deep learning startup. So basically something around using deep learning to power and better NLP. And I didn't really, it was something where like I'd heard that before and I didn't really know what that meant. Like, cause I always heard like deep learning is great for classification problems where you have a huge corpus of examples and you use the corpus of examples to power uh, improvements in you know, building that model where you don't necessarily have to give features that describe uh, an image of a cat, but by virtue of having so many images of a cat, you extract the features from that um, using deep learning. And I didn't really understand how that was applicable to NLP, but then he he explained it to me and, um, you know, just the idea that you can do classification of text in a similar way that you would classify images, you know, you by virtue of uh, having a large enough corpus of data. Um, and, you know, I heard something similar to this on the, um, I can't remember if it was your podcast or Ben Lorica's data podcast, where there was the, I think the phrase was text is the new images with regard to how deep learning is being applied to natural language processing, have you have you heard this at all? Yeah, I think uh, that might have been in our latest episode with uh, Richard Socher, um, okay. who uh, who founded MetaMind. Uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of interest in using deep learning with text. Um, a couple of months ago, Google released a uh, a model for parsing sentences using deep learning. Um, you can you can find it. They've they've informally called it Parsi McParseface. Uh, <laughs> I forget what the actual name of the project is, uh, but it, it it was very exciting when it came out, and uh, 
And you're right. A lot of the techniques are similar in the abstract to how you would analyze and classify images. Um, you can also le- use deep learning to generate content, um, as, as we see with things like uh, the deep dream algorithm that that turns images into collections of of other weird images. Um, so, so there's a lot of interest in that too, using uh, using deep learning to and, and neural networks to sort of generate sentences that sound plausible and and contain some uh, information that you're trying to convey. Speaking of artificial sentences that sound plausible, there was this, uh, you know, bots affecting politics thing that we had on Twitter recently where during the election there were all these bots that were, are you going to possible to tell a bot presidential campaign uh, candidate supporter from a non-bot presidential campaign supporter? Do you feel like that actually had any effect on the outcome of the election? I, I think fake social media bots uh, probably played some role in the outcome of the election. The other uh, probably more impactful thing was the kind of spread of fake news, uh, which which is right now the hottest topic in uh, all of natural language processing. Everyone is interested in trying to figure out if there are algorithmic approaches to, to discovering you know fake news on on Facebook and other social networks. Um, the, you know, social bots can have an impact because they can kind of, um, uh, you know, seed and, and stimulate, uh, discussions. They can take, uh, you know, they can, they can kind of rev things up at the outset. Uh, if you tweet something and it's controversial and no one sees it in the first five minutes, then it just disappears forever. If you tweet something and an army of, uh, 10,000 bots, uh, retweet it over the next three hours, then suddenly it becomes like a trending topic and a lot of people see it and it appears to have sort of weight and legitimacy. It gives these subtle cues that that social media readers can interpret to to mean that the you know the statement was correct or um, or or worth considering. So I think uh, I think those bots can have an impact on the way we see uh, social media users. Uh, like the president-elect. It is somewhat dystopian, um, but, you know, I this is like speaking personally, my response is just to like, I guess, add a, you know, give some measured skepticism to anything I see on the internet. And, and I think it's, what's, one thing that's interesting is just it really heightens the value of these uh, media institutions that, you know, New York Times or Washington Post or whatever, these these institutions that have this built-in fact-checking. There was a period of time where I was like, eh, who needs this fact-checking stuff? Like, just, you know, shoot first, ask questions later. Um, Now I am realizing that there is a real place for institutions that take their facts seriously. Right, right. Yeah, and and, and as a a journalist or former journalist myself, uh, I appreciate that a lot. Uh, I used to write for Forbes magazine, uh, between 2006 and 2012, and the I, I remember the editing process there uh, very fondly. There were a lot of of steps of checks, and a couple of editors would uh, read what you wrote. And the the more outrageous or the more um, uh, you know controversial your statement is, the more surprising your statement is, the more scrutiny it got from the editors, and they'd always ask for additional evidence. 
even if it didn't go in the article, they wanted to see it themselves on their desk to to be assured that uh, that it was legitimate. So, yeah, that that kind of weight um, is is incredibly important, and especially because all humans uh, tend to, you know, believe the things they want to believe. So if you're on Facebook and you see something that supports your political point of view, and it's just really fun, but but uh, totally implausible, um, you know, there's a good chance that you'll that you'll believe it because it's just so gratifying to believe it. And the internet is tuned to provide these things, right? Especially social media is is uh, is tuned to provide it, not just because of the echo chamber uh, effect where we tend to be friends with people who agree with us, but also because the platforms themselves actually tune the uh, the news feeds to give you stuff that you'll want to click on. So they're optimized for engagement and uh, outrage is very, very engaging. As a former journalist, you have thought about media a lot. What do you think of this conversation around Facebook? Like, what should, 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 is it okay for Facebook to just optimize for engagement or does Facebook have a responsibility to break down filter bubbles to service news that we don't necessarily want to see, um, to police fake news more severely. Is there a responsibility there? I, I think Facebook does have some responsibility to clean up the way that it distributes this stuff. And I'm not sure that it goes all the way to uh, you know outright uh, filtering the kinds of links that people can share or shadow banning them. Uh, which which Facebook is extremely uh, good at doing. Um, I think uh, I think beginning with a little bit of disclosure or more disclosure would help. A couple of years ago, Facebook noticed that uh, that there were a bunch of sites, generally right wing sites, that were um, you know publishing articles like uh, you know House initiates impeachment proceedings against Obama, and uh, you know patently false uh, headlines. And these sites claimed to be satire, but they were sort of tuned to uh, um, to produce unfunny satire that would just get sort of the, the far right uh, reaches of the political spectrum excited, and they'd get millions of shares and tons and tons of traffic. So that that was the birth of the uh, the satire label that you sometimes see on, on Facebook. And it, it applies to The Onion, which is uh, transparently satire as well as these kind of content farms that call themselves satire, but that are really just, um, you know, distributing fake news that, uh, that gets people excited and gets them lots of page views. Yeah, another question about your journalistic nature. Um, so doing this show, I'm, you know, I transitioned from programming a fair bit as an engineer to hosting a podcast full time. I don't write code anymore. And it, distances me from the experience of being an engineer and sometimes I think like maybe I'm missing certain things because I don't experience that anymore uh, and perhaps it stilts my interviews in a certain way do you think about that at all as somebody who has you know or as far as I know you don't code much yourself these days you can correct me if I'm wrong um, but like how do you does that does that do you think that uh, distorts your ability to interview uh, engineers? Uh, that's a really good question. I, I actually um, do try to program as much as possible. I'm, I'm a self-taught programmer. I majored in math in college and uh, 
but didn't have any formal programming training. And while I was at Forbes, I made an effort to uh, to really learn some programming skills, and I applied those by developing a lot of like interactive graphics and stuff like that. Yeah. And um, now my programming sort of long-term programming priority is to uh, get into neural networks and deep learning. And so I'm I'm uh, doing a lot of like small demonstration projects with TensorFlow, which is uh, really exciting. And doing that programming has given me a lot of insight uh, th- that's gone into my work and into the conversations that I have with people. But um, I think the fundamental practice of interviewing people and uh, and understanding a field is that you find uh, authorities whom you trust and uh, ask them a lot of questions. And so I have, you know, some insight from the fact that I program myself, but I, I think I have a lot more insight from uh, hanging out with with really bright, uh, credible, articulate practitioners who mm. are able to spend a lot more time programming and uh, and developing applications than than I ever could. I think mm. that's the core skill of, of journalism is developing sources whom you trust and uh, and you know asking them questions and and staying in touch with them and uh, having them help you understand what's going on. I certainly admire your approach of going for spending some spare time tinkering with neural networks. If there was something that I was going to tinker on in my spare time actually programming, I would be doing I, I would in fact I've really thought about doing exactly what you what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um what are the insights that you've gotten because I mean I I've I've done shows about TensorFlow. I've done shows about different machine learning frameworks and trying trying to get a grasp of of this stuff and i can make you know some statements like what the statement i made about deep learning okay it's this this procedure for extracting features where you know and you don't have to do this labeling as much uh you can get you know you just use virtue of uh lots of data to label that but i don't actually know what that means in terms of implementation so what are some of the insights that you've gained by actually tinkering with that stuff um that's a great question. Um, there, there are a few different categories of insights that I've really enjoyed. One of them is that it's illuminated some of the abstract math that I learned in college. And this is, this is something that's happened um, at a few points. Uh, so, you know, uh, taking economics classes and reading about economics really illuminated calculus for me and its applications and, and, uh, and its significance. And developing graphics really um, illuminated geometry for me and, and trigonometry. And I was like, you know, and anytime I, I created a, an interactive graphic, I'd find myself like writing out in pencil these uh, trigonometric transformations, uh, you know, sine squared plus cosine squared uh, uh, equals one and stuff like that, that, you know, that you might remember from uh, from like high school geometry. Uh, and, and so it really illuminated that and, and brought it to life. Right now, um, deep learning is illuminating and enlivening linear algebra for me, which was always my least favorite part of uh, of my math degree, um, and, and and it's it's really really gratifying. It's also stitching together um, some statistics for me and and helping me see uh, uh, you know some some aspects of of kind of regressions as well. In, in terms of applying, um, and I, I'm I'm really fascinated by content generation with neural networks. And so I'm playing with some stuff 
there, and I've I've stumbled across some interesting properties of neural networks. For instance, that if you um, you can you know train a neural network to recognize digits, the the digits uh, zero through nine, and and then it's possible to create um, by sort of reverse engineering the network uh, an image that looks to the network like it's an image of the number three but to a human is just an image of noise so you're kind of like exploiting the you know the heuristics that the neural network has developed as it's getting trained um, as with humans you know you can trick humans in exactly the same way uh, and, and like Daniel Kahneman wrote uh, wrote about this uh, you know take advantage of the of the um, heuristic corners that that humans develop and uh, and sort of trick them you can do the same thing with with neural networks so as we draw to a close um given that you're a fellow podcaster i'd love to hear what what are your thoughts on podcasting and where is it going this is fairly unrelated to software engineering but everybody's listening to a podcast right now so they might be curious i mean what are your podcast listening habits where do you think the industry is going i heard uh stephen dubner recently say that he thinks we're in peak podcast, whatever that means. Um, but he's a, you know, he's a, he even invests heavily in podcasts, so it was interesting to hear him say that. Um, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on the industry. Yeah, it's it's an industry I'm really interested in um, as a practitioner and a listener. Uh, it, it it strikes me as a very young industry in a lot of ways, and and um, I can kind of understand why Dubner would say we might be a peak podcast now. Just culturally, it feels like uh, podcasts are much more influential than they were a year ago. It's it's a bit like how people reacted to bots by saying like, Ugh, "Bots are over." Everyone is talking about them. Um, on the other hand, if you look at the amount of advertising spending that's going into podcasts, it's just a, a minuscule fraction of of uh, you know television and web advertising, and and a minuscule fraction of terrestrial radio advertising. So there's a lot of room for growth. Um, in order to grow, there need to be some technological changes. As you know, as a podcaster, um, podcast statistics are just the most primitive thing you have uh, you have ever seen, right? <laughs> I mean, podcast analytics, it's, they're from the Stone Age. And so big advertisers are unwilling to spend a lot on podcasts when the measurement tools are so poor. Although I've just done a bunch of shows about advertising fraud and one of the downsides of having a lot of analytics is you get a lot of fraud in the analytics. Uh, although we we don't need to go there now, but you know, if, I think I think if I think if advertisers were illuminated on what they were actually spending their money on, um, rather than phony numbers that they're getting uh, fed by the advertising agency, they would uh, consider podcasts more seriously. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, totally, and and um, you know, podcasts are are a very special thing. That the companies that do advertise on podcasts just love it, um, you know, because they associate their brands with the podcast hosts and podcast listeners have these very intimate relationships with uh, with the hosts of the programs that they listen to. So, and it gives them like an indie brand, like Squarespace, yeah. Mailchimp, Casper Harry mattresses, Shave, and Casper Nat- mattresses, Nature Box, like, yeah, right, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, the, you know, they're they're getting a lot out of it, and and they're paying a lot. Of money for it too. the The CPMs on podcasts are way higher than uh, the CPMs on any websites. So it's um, uh, it 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 feels like it's a bit of a constrained 
market right now constrained by uh um by the uh the the sort of supply of content and by the measurement uh and and ad placement tools available that's a re- it's a really hairy issue too right cuz in order to improve the metrics you would need to change the clients that podcast listeners use and um apple who kind of uh you know sits astride the market and and decides these things hasn't indicated any interest in changing the podcasting client in iOS and you have efforts like you know NPR has its own podcasting app that you can download and certainly they're getting much more valuable data out of that than they would out of you know the sort of the iTunes uh mechanisms well you know the the change wouldn't actually have to be that dramatic i've thought about this a bit and like all all that Apple would have to do is change the podcast app so that it does analytics. It rec- it it records analytics whether or not the phone is online for how the user is consuming a downloaded episode, and then uploads that information next time it's connected to a network. Right, right, yeah. So that it does some self-reporting. So that it does some self-reporting because the problem right now is that you can just like podcasts are just downloaded automatically or they're streamed and those two things count as the same thing whether or not you listen to the entire episode whether or not you listen through the mid-roll whether or not you listen through the second mid-roll and so so the analytics don't really go in detail um basically because the analytics begin where begin and end at the point at which you are you have listened you have downloaded it basically yeah, and, and that's why the only um, companies that are willing to advertise on podcasts are companies that are doing customer acquisition and have kind of a built-in mechanism for understanding the efficacy of those ads, right? So, you know, go to naturebox.com and type in the code software engineering daily for, you know, 10% off your first order. Um, so they're able to measure it. We don't yet see uh, brand advertising on on podcasts where it's like, you know, mercedes-benz brings you this podcast and uh tells you that it's uh it's a great car and the most luxurious thing you've ever seen or whatever you know because they have no way of measuring uh, the impact of of that ad yeah um with the exception of the twit network the twit network has gotten ford and visa oh wow i think and yeah yeah they get some brand advertisers so it's not impossible but yeah i don't know We'll see. Anyway, John, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, I'm a big fan of the podcast. It's been super valuable to me, and I liked Bot Day a lot as well. Thanks so much, Jeff. It's, it's really been a pleasure. I'm a fan of your podcast, too, and it's, uh, it's, it's a real treat to come on it myself. 